Easter 2020 will be somewhat strange. Church buildings will be closed, conventions have been cancelled, and Christians are isolated in their homes. And yet the people of God, that body of believers, will nevertheless remember the, the doing and the dying and the rising again of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. That though separated physically, we shall be one in spirit, worshipping and rejoicing in our God and Saviour. To that end, I'm turning to the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 14. Some of you may know the, the, the name Warren Wisby. A prolific author and speaker and pastor. And among his many books is a little commentary on the prophet Habakkuk. And he entitled that little book, From Worry to Worship. Those words are a wonderful description of the opening verses of John 14. And so I'm, I'm borrowing uh, 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 Wesby's title for this series that I will do over this Easter period. How does John 14 begin? Well, it begins with a, a picture that many in our world today, right now, can identify with. Troubled hearts. Let me quote. Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. And the term that the gospel writer uses here, this, this, this word troubled, is a very strong word. It signifies horror, agitation, anxiety. It means to be deeply, deeply troubled. And is that not true of many a heart today? People's hearts feeling them. Filled with dread and fear and worry. It is to, to such hearts that Jesus speaks. And he speaks with an authority and an assurance. He speaks of a house. He speaks of horror. And he speaks of hope. He takes the hearts of people from worry to worship. From trouble to triumph. Like the great and good pastor that he was, Jesus enables his followers to overcome their fears by focusing on him and on the future. Focusing on that which is yet to be will enable them to face the, the frustrations and the failures and the forces of today. And it was a, a mindset that he knew himself very well. For as Jesus walked the, the paths of Palestine, as Jesus moved towards Golgotha, upon what was his heart fixed? The words that we find in the book of Hebrews. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despised the shame. So what does Jesus speak of here to calm our fears, to dismiss 
our troubles. Well, if you're acquainted with this passage at all, you will remember that Jesus here speaks about my Father's house. That wonderful, warm term, that glorious description of that which will yet be. Heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, glory, eternity with Him, whatever phrase you want to employ. And isn't this what Easter really is all about? It's about the Father's house. It's about eternity. It's about getting hell-deserving sinners into heaven as the saints and people of God. So what can we say about heaven to calm our hearts? My first point this morning is this, that the people of God will find themselves in in a wonderful new realm. How did the people of faith describe this future? Well, we read again in Hebrews, this time the 11th chapter. They desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Jesus called it the Father's house, in which there were many rooms. And and by the way, don't get caught up too much with that term, many rooms. The the picture here, the truth being presented by our Lord here, simply, there's going to be space for all. Nobody lives or sleeps rough in heaven. There's space for all who will believe. It is Emmanuel's land. It's the place from which Christ came and to which he entered. It's the place the patriarchs lived for and longed for and looked for. It's the place, as Thomas Boston once said, to which the martyrs have joyfully swum through a sea of blood. And what a wonderful new realm it is. It's a place where all pain is dismissed. Where our our past, no matter how crooked, how bad, how treacherous, our, our past is forgotten because we're told, behold, I make all things new. Parting is over. We shall forever be with the Lord. Poverty is overcome. Pestilence, wars, tensions, conflicts are banished. And it's a permanent place. Never dismantled. Never destroyed. A realm of absolute perfection. Where joy will not be mixed with sorrow. Where our strength will not grow weary. Where our pleasures will not be poisoned by guilt. And where our own desires will not be defiled by our depravity. No, no, no. God's people will at last be perfectly godly people. For he who has undertaken to bring us to the Father's house will complete his work in us and will present us, as as Jude says in the 24th verse, without fault and with great joy. Or as Paul writes in Ephesians 5, we'll be there without stain, without wrinkle, without blemish, but holy and blameless. This is the future for those who believe. 
a wonderful new realm. But then add to that, the people of God will find they have a, a wonderfully new role. A wonderful new role. You see, in what position does God place us by His grace? Well, we're, we're forgiven and we, we praise God for that. We've been cleansed from all our unrighteousness. We have become new creatures in Christ Jesus. And we have been justified and adopted. How wonderful is that? That the judge not simply justifies us and declares us not guilty, but then he steps down from his bench and he takes us by the hand and he takes us home as his beloved adopted children. The pinnacle of his grace. Children of God. Oh, says John. Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called the, the children of God, and such we are. Friends, this is the ground on which we stand. Blood-bought children. But there's more. For if you turn to the book of Revelation in verses 4 through 6, you'll find that we have been made to become a kingdom of priests to our God. And Peter spells this out so significantly in the second chapter of his first epistle. Taking the terms from the Old Testament, he describes our privileges, he describes our benefits, he describes our position. That simply, yet sublimely, the positions that we now occupy, the roles we now fulfill, speak to us of our privilege, that we're now near to God. So very near, nearer we cannot be. And he speaks of our possession, that God has, has purchased us, that God has acquired us, that we are now his, his own private, precious possession. And our position, holy, regal, reigning with our Lord, offering the sacrifices of prayer. And what does this all mean to us personally? We will at last be masters of our own hearts and passions and inclinations and desires. The promise that we fail to keep today. The good intentions that never see fulfillment. The commitments we make but we never maintain them. All these things will be things of the past, my friend. We are kings reigning with Christ forever. And we are priests to rejoice in Christ and to give to Him eternal praise and wondering at His endless glory. And what praise that will be. For if you turn over your Bible to the book of Revelation chapter 5, in verses 13 and 14 you find that wonderful description of that glorious mass choir singing their hearts out to the Lord. And the picture here is of no cold, formal, orchestrated event. They're not singing some, some heartless hymn. No, 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 no. The praise flows freely. Their hearts are aflame. Their lips move adoringly. The sacrifice is acceptable. All that 
is within. All that passion that we contain will burst forth into praise of his holy name and we will declare with excited emotion, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Oh my friends, heaven is a wonderful place. The future for the faithful means a wonderful new realm to explore and a wonderful new role to experience. And so thirdly, the people of God will find themselves with a new realization. A new realization. Now a word of explanation. When I say a new realization, I'm using that word new as we do when we describe the second part of our Bible. The New Testament. New, in that sense, doesn't mean different. The New Testament is not different from the Old. It's not two books. It's a fuller expression of all that we've begun to learn in the Old. The New Testament is the Father's fuller revelation of Himself. And so in glory, we shall enjoy a new, a fuller realization of the sense of God. The Bible says how good it is for brethren to dwell in unity and harmony. And yet let's be honest, beloved. Here, such is our nature, and such are our sinful tendencies, that rather than harmony, there's disunity, there's disruption, there's division within the family of God. We fail so frequently to keep the unity of the Spirit. We fail so frequently to love one another fervently. But in the Father's house, the communion of saints will be perfect. We shall all sit down together at the marriage supper of the Lamb and unitedly exalt and honor Him. Our conversation will be pure. Our hearts will beat as one. Our acceptance of each other without malice, without jealousy, without envy, without hypocrisy. But then there will be the new realization of our Savior. For then there will be perfect seeing. We shall see Him as He is. We're in the Father's house. And what does Jesus say? Where I am, there you will be also. Face to face with Christ my Saviour. Face to face, what will it be? When with rapture I behold Him, Jesus Christ, who died for me. Perfect scene of the Saviour. And perfect satisfaction with the Saviour. Seeing Him, beholding His glory, will satisfy, will, will, will surpass every desire and delight and emotion and want that we have. The, the, the words of Annie Ross' cousin, the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not on the crown he gives, but on his pierced hand, because the lamb is all the glory. 
of Emmanuel's Lamb. Beloved, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look off by faith to the Father's house and behold the Son and you, yes you, being with Him. For such a sight will strengthen you to face the storms that would assail us today. So back to John 14. What did Jesus say to these fearful saints? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. To put that simply, trust in me. Believe in God. Believe in me. Even though you may not understand and be able to give an explanation that all that is happening in our world, but we rest in Him. How does a Christian live at such times? What is Jesus' message for trouble? Deeply troubled, anxious, fearful hearts. How do we respond? These may sound hard, but by grace they're real. There's rest. The rest of faith. Quietly waiting on God. Knowing that He is sufficient for us. He is Alpha and Omega. So that the one thing we don't do, because the opposite of having faith in God is panicking. And so... Christians don't panic. We rest in the Beloved. We don't have all the answers, but we know Him who does. We rest. Because then we do so because we remember. We remember the blessings that buffetings can never remove. We have Treasures that cannot be taken from us. Remember, we have pardon from God. Remember, we have peace with God. Remember, we have a loving Heavenly Father. And nothing in this world or any world can separate us from God's love for us. And how comforting that is, beloved, that Paul there in Romans 8 is not speaking about our love for God, which is so weak and thin. But the strong, securing love of God for His own. We have a glorious future, remember. The Father is waiting in the Father's house for us. Rest. Remember. And realize that God is not ignorant or surprised by what is happening in our world. He is in control. He is Lord. He is sovereign. He is working out His purposes, even those dark episodes that He brings into this world. And we, we realize what is for us the worst kiss possible. What's the worst case scenario my Christian brother or sister? What's the worst case? What's the worst thing that can happen to us here on earth? We die. 
we die. And yet, how did Paul, as a Christian, view that? For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because through death, I gain more of Christ. Realize, beloved, the riches that yet await us, the wonders that are yet in store for us. Rest in Him, my beloved. Remember Him and what you have from His hand. Realize that God is over all. And then recall what God has done in the past. Remember His mighty works of old. Remember and recall His mighty acts, His wonders that He's performed. Read the prophets and see what they've spoken about, what they've written about, and the promises and the pictures that they give to us to present to us our, our mighty Maker and our Sovereign God. And then what do Christians do? My final point is this. We rejoice. We rejoice. Oh, it seems strange, doesn't it? How can you rejoice in days such as this? Let me read to you a passage. The words may sound familiar to you. We used to sing them as a little chorus. They're from the book of Habakkuk and the third chapter. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. What's he saying here? I went down to the supermarket, but there were no toilet rolls left. I went down to the next aisle, there was no bread left. I turned around to the next, but there were no old eggs left. This is what he's speaking about here. The fig tree not blossoming, no fruit on the vine. The shelves are all empty at the supermarket. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the sense that the shelves may be empty, but God, God is nigh. God is in control. The sense that God is in control brings quietness to my soul. The sense that God knows brings a calm to my heart. It, it feeds my faith. It enables me in these troubled times to wait quietly and look to Him. This is what Christians do. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Trust in God. Rest in Him. Remember the blessings. Realize His Lordship. Recall what He has done. And therefore rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Because, beloved, for such a time as this, we're commanded. It's not just good advice of a preacher, but it's a command of God. 
that we rejoice in the Lord. And so I close this morning with these words from someone who I appreciate so greatly. His words and works are so uh, encouraging and supportive. An old brother who is now with the Lord, Alec Mortier. And he once wrote this. Our security is not in human organization, nor national strength, nor personal insurance policies and sound banking, nor in our ability to, to explain. But our security is only in the hand of Jesus and folded in the hand of the Father. And within that security, while the changes and chances of the world may touch us, but only by His will, they can never dislodge us. And one day, we shall all be there. We, the Lord's gleanings from the wide earth, when the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord, and of his Messiah. One day, we who believe, we will be there. We'll all be there in the Father's hearts, praising and prizing our Lord and Savior. And so Jesus says to his troubled followers, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And therefore in the midst of trouble. Know the triumph that there is through faith in Christ alone. You think about that. 